Today's guest is Richard Scobie. Richard is a screenwriter, producer, director, and musician whose work spans film, television, and music. Richard achieved success in the 1980s as the principal songwriter and lead singer with the Icelandic band Rickshaw. Moving to Los Angeles in the 1990s, Richard built his career and reputation as a talented and prolific songwriter. We're going to talk today about that journey, the rickshaw story, navigating, or should I say surviving, the music industry, lessons learned, and what the future holds. Welcome, Richard. Hey, Connor. How are you? Nice to see you. How are you doing? Likewise. Good. Good. Fantastic. Here, not, not here, not so sunny Denmark at the moment, but... You're based in Mon, the island of Mon, right? Yes, the island of Moon, uh, which is south uh, south coast, well, yeah, southeast of Den- in Denmark. Yeah. Um, it's a region called Zealand, and we're on the uh, Baltic Sea right there. So, yeah, it's quite nice. Beautiful, I'd say. Um, okay, so let's start from the beginning. Where were you born? Where are you from? I am born in Reykjavik, Iceland. Uh, yes, to a, uh, a U.S.-born father from New York. Uh, my mother was Icelandic. He uh, went there after the Second World War, after having fought in the uh, Pacific. Met my mother. Uh, had eight kids, and I'm one of them. Four boys, four girls. And, uh, yeah. So, even though uh, even though I've traveled around a lot, I'm, I'm Icelandic. That's, that's what I can consider myself to be. And many people will be wondering um, your accent. You do have uh, quite a strong American accent. How long did you uh, spend in the United States? Well, we moved there. Uh, we moved to the States when I was 14 years old. Um, to origi- First to South Carolina, which was uh, quite a culture shock. Coming from a very isolated island, uh, which Iceland is, or was at the time, uh, about 250,000 people inhabitants and very sort of um, homogenized in certain ways, um, in many ways, really. And then uh, we moved to, um, yeah, Dillon, South Carolina. I was there for a year. And like I say, it was a completely different culture. Mm. And when I arrived there, you know, people would ask me, you know, you, you talk funny, boy. And uh, so... It became sort of a thing for me because people didn't know about Iceland. They'd never heard of Iceland. They didn't know what it was. It wasn't, certainly it wasn't on the map as it is today. It wasn't a, you know, a bucket list destination. And, um, and so when people were asking, you know, Iceland, you know, what is, a, what is an Iceland and how long is the drive from Iceland to the United States? So, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite a culture shock. And so I, I you know, it was, it was a combination of, um, you know, not having to explain to everyone constantly where I was from. And also, you know, we stayed there for almost 10 years. I, we moved around a lot. So I was a, a little over a year in Dillon, South Carolina. I was introduced to what's called sophomore year in high school. Mm. And then we moved to Athens, Georgia, which is where I did a junior year uh, in high school. And then we moved to um, Severna Park, Maryland, uh, which is, you know, a half-hour drive from Annapolis, Maryland. Mm. And that's where I graduated high school. 
And so, you know, with all those moves and different accents, I mean, there's a completely different accents down in South Carolina versus to what's up in Maryland. And, um, yeah, so, and then, you know, I also, I went to college in, in the States, so over over time and sort of, uh, yeah, over time I sort of developed a, a, what you, you would call a Yank accent. <laughs> so tell me, why, how come you moved, decided then to move back to the United States? What age were you when you, or sorry, when you moved back to Iceland? What age were you when you went back to Reykjavik? Um, so we moved when I was 14, which was when... It, Last century, 1975, mm. and uh, we, I think, if my memory serves me right, we moved back to Iceland in 81 or 82, I'm not quite sure, mm. one of those years, and it was really because um, my father, who was from Hell's Kitchen in, in Manhattan, New York, he loved Iceland. He loved Iceland more than anyone I've ever met. He was just, he, uh, you know, he was enamored with the, the country and the people and the culture and whatnot, and, I think that when we went back to the States, well, he went back to the States with us. It was my first time, really, that um, that uh, he missed Iceland. And he wanted to sort of to go back to that sort of wholesome living, if you will. It's very sort of, uh, uh, it's very, um, well, at that time, it was very isolated, extremely isolated. And sort of, you know, not too many frills, so to speak. Mm. basic living mm. and he liked that and so we went back and uh my uh my mother and him they decided to open sort of a, a little you know sort of a shop selling you know sort of fine things you know finer things crystals and silver uh, candle operas and that kind of stuff and mm. so you know they wanted to be their own bosses so that's what they did mm. and I then you know we, we went we went along of course. Yeah. And how would you describe those teenage years in the United States? Were they, was that a good time for you? Obviously, that's fantastic. where you developed your, you, you developed your interest in music there, right? No. Um, I have, I've, you know, I love music from since I can remember. I was obsessed with music. Uh, I was the kid with the headphones. We, we had a dinky little, you know, record player when we lived in Iceland. There was nothing fancy. Um, you know, it's one unit with the arm on it and it would drop down the LP and it's ancient history. And I would have these headphones because the speakers were shot and I listened to the music and the headphones constantly. I was obsessed. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what, what were your influences? What were you listening to? Did well, I was, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it was, um, of course, very European influenced music, uh, cause I said Europe, um, so I grew up listening to bands like Zeppelin, The Beatles, Stones, mm. um, Nazareth. There's a band called Slade, which was a huge uh, influence on me. Elton John, mm. you know Bowie. The list goes on and on. And I was I was completely obsessed with. It. And um, it was just you know it was where I really uh, spent most of my time was in my room after school listening to music mm. and sort of daydreaming. It was back in the day, uh, you know, when you actually. Uh, the album cover was part of the experience. Mm. So you'd read that cover to cover and see the art and who played what and where it was recorded. And it was just, it, it was this whole other world that I just kind of sort of got transported into and I knew that I wanted to be part of that world somehow, mm. at, even at a, at a young age. So, but then we moved to the States and um, 
And then I, right away I was introduced uh, to completely different music which I had never even heard before, like uh, Kiss. I'd never heard of Kiss before I moved to the States. And, um, you know, sort of American bands. Van Halen, and, Motley Crue. Well, that came a little later. Uh, in the yeah. South, it was a lot of Southern-influenced music, of course, but it was Kiss was a huge thing, and then with bands like Molly Hatchet and Out- Outlaws and, um, yeah, bands of that nature. But actually, you know, to answer your question, was uh, it was a fantastic time, I have to say, because when I was growing up in Iceland, it was sort of a... Uh, it, the fa- You know, growing up in Iceland, there wasn't a lot of money to go around especially with eight kids. And I, I think it's sort of similar to the Irish sort of uh, experience, you know, 50 years ago, what, what, you know, most people were just working class families and just getting by, you know. And so um, coming to America where there was this abundance of everything, you know, you could go to the grocery store and it was just aisles and aisles and aisles of food and all kinds of variants. And it was just amazing. And everything was so big and the portions were big People were so friendly and outgoing, which, you know, people in Iceland are friendly, but, you know, initially, back then, they weren't that outgoing. Everybody was sort of insular, Mm. you know what I mean? Mm. Sort of staunch. Mm. And so when we moved to the, when we moved to the States, it was a, it was just like a whole other world, which it was. And, um, you know, I hadn't been popular, (laughs) not that I was popular, but I hadn't been very popular or noticeable. Uh, when I went to school in Iceland. And then when I came to the States, I was a novelty because I was this kid from another world who spoke with a strange accent. Yeah. You know, and so... Where, uh, where did you learn English, Richard? Your father obviously spoke to you in English, did he? Yes, well, we... we um, Do you me know, a favor. Stop moving in the chair because I can hear all the, the cracking. Oh, sorry. The chair. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, it's, so I'll ask that question the, again, right? So where did you um, try to stop moving because it'll... It's an age thing. You start rocking. Yeah. Um, so where did you learn to speak English? Well, um, it was a bilingual uh, family. So we, uh, you know, well, you always had to speak English at the dinner table. Always. Even in Iceland? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. My father was very strict about that. And uh, so he, so there was an, always English spoke. But I spoke English, you know, it was a rudimentary English because it was really, you know, my father worked a lot, and so it was really just, you know, at the dinner table and then sometimes on the weekends and stuff, mm. you know, rudimentary English, but otherwise we spoke Icelandic. Mm. And then, um, uh, you know, and then when I got to the States, I understood I, I understood English, but I wasn't great. I, I mean, I wasn't fluent. Um, mm. Yeah, and I spoke English with a, an Icelandic accent, and that, you know, people found that very sort of peculiar, what accent is that, and... Where are you from and all that. And so, but, yeah, it was just, a, I, you know, those living in South Carolina, Athens, Georgia, and, and in Maryland was just fantastic. I, it was a fantastic um, experience and enriching. It was also, it was just a really fun period. It was sort of that, you know, it was a, a touch of that sort of that American thing that you see in the movies, like going through high school, very lively, a lot of stuff to do, very friendly outgoing, you know, and you just become, you become part of something. You become part of a, some kind of sort of a friend group or whatever, and you get invited to barbecues and beach parties and whatnot, you know? So yeah, that was a, it was a really, 
it was those are great memories. So, were you annoyed and disappointed about having to move back to Reykjavik? Um, it was bittersweet, yes, because um, of course, you know, uh, leaving Iceland when I was fourteen, you know, that was home, and uh, the, in the beginning, you know, was, went through homesickness and all that stuff, and it was such a strange culture being in, uh, at the time, being in South Carolina. I mean, mm. people from South Carolina are extremely friendly. So- Southern people overall are very friendly people, very mm. gregarious and outgoing. And and um, and so when we, he, when he wanted to move back, I sort of uh, initially, I resisted, you know, because I was in my early 20s and, you know, started to branch out. I had friends. I actually moved out and, was living with a friend of mine on the beach and and we were having a great time but my father had this way of uh, you know he was good at, at giving you a bit of the guilt trip you know <laughs> and so you know your mother isn't sleeping at night you know she worries about you blah 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 and it just at the time you know i was the dutiful son i was like i couldn't take it so i moved back so to, you're in- to be with the family to be and so there's eight kids, father, mother. You're, you're back in Iceland. You're back in Reykjavik. Did you go to university in Reykjavik now, or? Yes, I went to the University of Iceland for a, a short while. Um, I was at med school for a short while, and but that was really my father's dream because he always wanted to be a doctor, and uh, and it was a very stark experience, really, because you're know, going from. Because that before we moved, uh, we, by that time we were living in New York. Before we moved back to Iceland, so we from Maryland we moved to New York, mm. and we were living in Long Island. That was a fantastic time, and um, you know I did two years of college there, and then when I went to the University of Iceland, you know it was coming back in the winter, the start of the winter, and it was really dark because you know Iceland is in the winter; it's dark twenty hours a day, mm. and those years it was. You know, before global warming or whatever set in, it was it was really sort of harsh winters, uh, very cold, a lot of snow, very dark, and so yeah, it was. A, I found it actually. I found it to be a very difficult and depressing uh, time, and um, so uh, you know, in New York, and I, I'm sure we're going to go over into the music. To, sort of segue into the music is that, um, you know, I had done a few demos in New York of, of original songs that, uh, with a friend of mine, uh, Mike Paskey, and uh, we, yeah, we went in and recorded, we played everything, and and I had a younger brother, well, I have a younger brother, you don't have younger, when we went to Iceland, he had gone to some party with a cassette and played it, um, played it at the party, and at the party, there was this uh, famous Icelandic uh, drummer who had just sort of quit the band, in Iceland, this famous band in Iceland, punk, punk band. Anyway, he paid, plays the tape for him, and unbeknownst to me, and then I'm studying for a test on a Sunday, and there's a uh, knock at the door, and it's this drummer who actually lived three or four houses up from us. And he introduces himself and he says, look, I was at this party. Your brother was there. He played me a cassette of your stuff. I, you know, I really liked it. I was wondering if you'd like to come and, and jam. And so the reason I'm telling you this now is I'll get into why I left school is because 
Mm. You know, I said, well, I couldn't. I'm studying for a test, blah, blah, blah. He wouldn't, he wouldn't take no for an answer. We stood there probably for, you know, 30, 40 minutes. And he finally talked me into coming. And I, so I grabbed my guitar, go with him, go down um, to where they're practicing. And there's a bunch of guys standing around, nothing to do, because he had gone to get me. And then we plug in. And, How did he know where to find you? Well, my brother told him. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Yeah, my, my, my brother told him. And which was weird because, I mean, I, you know, I was nobody. I was just, I was just going to school. And um, wasn't in the, I wasn't, you know, I, hadn't, I wasn't a professional musician at this point at all. I mean, far from it. Complete novice. And, uh, and so, you know, it just from the first few songs we played, it just, there's something clicked. It was really, you know, it was really something there. And, and we all felt it and just sounded great and, you know, it wasn't perfect, but it sounded really good, and we could feel there was an energy or something there. Anyway, um, so you know, you know, during that week, you know, I, I would I would be in school, and I'd start thinking about it. He'd call me and say, "Hey, you want to come down and jam?" I'd, so jam. So this went on for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. I go down and jam, but I was trying to juggle these balls with going to med school, and and uh, you know, but it was really pulling at me. I mean, this. From sitting and, and studying, you know, really to me, which was, you know, not very tiddly heavy, stuff heavy at the text, time. Heavy text, text in the anatomy, biology, the yeah, exactly. This is in the car work. Yeah, it was, and it wasn't really uplifting or anything. Versus going to see these guys, everybody has a smile on their face, and they're loving the music. It was just like, and then I just made a very, very difficult decision uh, to speak to my dad. And as I said earlier, it was. It was more his dream than mine. Um, and I told him, look, I want to take a year off to try this out. And he was like, no, 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 no. This, don't take time off from med school to do this. You, you know, you have to concentrate on this. And this, the other in, thing is in, just sort in, of, in, in, Did he have to pay for med school in Reykjavik? Like, or was no, it free? no, 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 no. Okay. It's, it's free. And so, um, well, it was free. I don't know where, how it is today, but um, mm. it probably is. But, um, Long story short, I took. I said I'd take a year off. He was very, very disappointed, uh, even angry. He was angry at me. So, um, really, didn't speak to me for a while mm. while I went to do that. But I, I mean, it, I was. Uh, there was just no. There was no question about it. There was something I had to do. I had wanted to do it, and so I did. Plus, you had an opportunity. You were being handed an opportunity. It's not like well, you were going about, out on your own. Like, the opportunity was right there. Exactly. Talk about, you know, a phone call or a knock at the door. That's mm. exactly, you know, what it was. It was from nowhere. Mm. And so it was destiny, really, for me, my destiny, knocking on the door. Yeah. So the band the, forms, right? So now you have, essentially, this is, this is a band that you're forming and building, right? And this well, is it was a few. Started. It was a few uh, sort of, you know, guys came and went and stuff like that. But yes, then it yeah. formed into, into eventually rickshaw. And how long was it before that door opened, that meeting, and the band actually solidifies and forms? It's a four piece. Is it a four piece rickshaw? Uh, well, initially, it started as um, I think a three piece. What had happened was there were two guys. Um, the keyboard player and the guitar player, Golly and Siggy are their names. 
Yeah, I got along really well with them, and and but there was some tensions between them and the uh, and the drummer who had knocked on my door, mm. and so they he he fired them, much to my chagrin. I was I wasn't happy about that at all. I felt really bad. I you know confrontation at that time was just the, I avoided it like you know, the plague, and so he let them go. But I was friend. I had become friends with them, and then he wanted to continue on, but it just didn't feel right to me, and. The guitar player calls me up and says, listen, man, we'd like to, we'd really like you to come join us. And, and I wanted to be where the sun was shining, really. It wasn't so much it was better or worse. It was just they had more of a positive attitude at the time. And, you know, starting off by kicking someone out just didn't feel right to me. So mm. I sort of jumped ship and, and went with them. Um, so it was the three of us. And then, you know, it's this, you, you try different permutations of this and that one drummer and then it doesn't really fit and then we got uh you know a different bass player or whatever and then we found the perfect bass player who came into the band he was just he fit like a glove and we and the last piece was the drummer who was uh had been in another well-known icelandic band and was known for being you know one of the best drummers in iceland if not even you know scandinavia wow so uh from that moment and then yeah, and really, from that sort of lineup, the show was formed. What year was that? Can you remember? Yes, it was probably in around 83, 84. So 83, you formed the band. What age are you 80, at this I, stage? I'd say 84. I'd say 83, 84. Well, I'm, I'm born in 1960, late in the year, so I would say if, it's 80, if it was 84, I'm 23. 23. Okay, so... Essentially, now you've left. Medicine. Pretty old, actually. Sorry, pretty old, actually. You know, to be starting at that age because guys usually start at fifteen or fourteen. Yeah. Uh, how were you in terms of musically? How would you describe what level were you at? Were you you're you're pretty good in the acoustic. You're good on electric. Um, can you play other instruments, or was it both of those? Well, I'm. I'm uh, uh, I can. I can play. You know, certain things by ear and stuff, but. Mm. Um, I'm by no means good at anything. I'm, I'm proficient on guitar. I can play a little keyboard. I can play a little bass. I can't play the drums, unfortunately. I would say at the time, I was just, you know, it was, I was more hopes and dreams than anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew a few chords. I had written a few songs. Um, nothing spectacular. And I certainly was never the best singer. Um, so, and I, I actually, that wasn't, my goal was, was not, to, actually, I, I didn't want to be the singer. That's not what I wanted. I was actually, I just wanted to be sort of a rhythm, a rhythm guitarist and a songwriter. Mm-hmm. But because uh, it was by default, really, because none of the guys could sing and their English wasn't that great. And so, you know, I got shoved up front sort of by default. Mm. Even though I like always like to sing, I just, mm. you know, I didn't. Uh, actually didn't have the confidence mm-hmm. to be a front man for a very de- long time. But you developed that over time. Like, so you're practicing, practicing, and, and, and developing that confidence. I mean, I don't know any lead singer or any songwriter who starts, lead singer of a band who starts confidence. That comes, that's a journey, right? Yeah, I mean, probably, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, although maybe somebody like David Lee Roth, who seems to be a, have had that confidence from day one, you know, over the top, but... Yeah, I think pretty much that, you know, a lot of musicians tend to be sort of insular, mm. shy. 
Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Actors as well. So mm. you start off now. You're writing music. You're you're songwriting together. You get a, you get a did you get a demo tape together early in that journey? Maybe five. Yes. Episodes? Well, <clears throat> we had we had done a in an earlier version of before Rick's show before you know that initial group split up. We had done a demo and we called ourselves the Boys Brigade, um, and which was very sort of heavy synth influenced music, sort of ultravox and Croftware, that kind of stuff. Mm. And we went into the studio and we cut some demos and. And that was sort of, I love that process. I love being in the studio. I'm one of the, I was one of the one I could spend 14 hours there when everybody's like falling asleep and I just want to keep going. And so um, we did that. And then once we hit Rickshaw, we were like, we were like, okay, we're at this age, you know, uh, the keyboard player actually had been in law school. Uh, we were at the same university because there was only one university in Iceland at that time, University of Iceland. And so he was in law, I was in medicine. We and we so we both made that sort of decision to take go on hiatus and and pursue this and, and so right away we were like um, you know since we've disappointed our parents we better oh, yeah. you know we better come up with the goods and so very quickly the aim was to sort of uh, do sort of world class stuff if we could write world class songs or you know, very least sort of competitive songs mm. with sort of our own sound and, you know, try to get a record deal, um, okay. which, uh, which we set out almost immediately. Um, at that time, Connor, it was, Iceland was still very isolated. And so, mm. you know, there was no internet, um, you know, a lot of, you know, magazines and stuff from overseas, you know, pop magazines or whatever came by boat. So maybe they were, you know, months later, you know, the December issue came out in January, late January or something. And so everything was, you know, anything we got uh, overseas, like the latest record or whatever, it wasn't really the latest record anymore. Mm. You know, and so we were, um, we were very limited in what we could get uh, overseas to com compare and contrast what, what they were doing. So, um but we did, we went up, did go on as rickshaw. We did start off on that sort of new romantic uh, ride to begin with, because that was sort of the music that was happening. I was always more into rock and roll, but myself, but I, I mean, I really like synthesizers. I like Depeche Mode and Yazoo, and, and like I said, Kraftwerk and Ultravox and bands of that nature. And, and so we sort of started on that journey, but we had a guitarist who also liked a bit of rock and roll. And so we went in. Um, what we did was we had a concert, um, and our bass player, actually, his father had a, an advertising agency and he, um, he was clever. He sort of, we, we were unknown. We, I mean, we were nobodies, but he sort of, he was clever to set, put out, make ads for us in the papers, which were only like three newspapers in Iceland at the time, the morning paper saying, you know, November 15th. This was 1985, November 15th, 1985. Something's going to happen big and blah, blah, blah. And so this went on for a few weeks. People were like, what's going to happen on November 15th? And then it came a whole spread of a picture of us, you know, Rick Shaw playing at this club, da, 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 which was very clever at the time because, you know, Curiosity. when we, when we, yeah, when we premiered there, the club was packed. It was mm. packed. And, you know, it couldn't even get more people in there. And so, well, that's nerve-wracking, right? Because they haven't heard your music yet. No, nobody. 
So that must, and, that must be a scary night. Well, in a lot of ways, it's a, yeah, it's scary, but it's thrilling beyond because also, mm. you know, you're playing a character in, in many ways because none of us had that confidence, really, but you pretend to have it, you know. So you walk out on stage, the lights are there, and we had a great sound man at the time, and blah, blah, blah. And you walk out, and you walk like you out, and like you know what you're doing, but you're really, your toes are curled up in your shoes, you know. Uh, you're nervous, and, and then we played it, and, you know, we got fantastic um, write-up and feedback. And for Icelanders, like I said, because we were so isolated, a lot of people thought we were foreigners with a, bad, with a name like Rickshaw, which I actually, you know, where did the name nice come from? Why, why did you choose that name? Actually, a funny story. A friend of mine, because I was, you know, with my name, it just didn't sound very, very uh, catchy or rock starish or whatever. And a friend of mine suggested you should call yourself Rick Shaw. You know, my, my story is <laughs> Rick Shaw. And I'm like, oh, okay. It's still the same letters, R F, you know. And, yeah. Uh, and, uh, Oh, Rick O'Shea, but no, yeah. Rick Shaw. And, um, and then we needed a, uh, it was actually, we were, we were the corner. We were, had to do these ads for the paper. And what are we going to call ourselves? And there were a few names, but the last minute I said, let's use Rick Shaw. Cause I had, I'd bounced the name to the guys. Well, my name would be Rick Shaw. Mm. And so that got chosen. I think we, I think if, if I remember correctly, foolishly, we were going to, let's just use it now and we'll change it later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so, uh, and it's stuck. And so the, from, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. So well, if, just, if, if, if the first gig done, it's a, it's a, it's a success. It's great. Yeah. Everybody loves it. What happens next? Well, we, um, you know, we didn't have that many songs at that time. We had maybe eight songs. Wasn't a lot. Uh, we, you know, we struggled to fill an hour, but what we did try, we, you know, because we were under the influence of some, what we had seen on VHS videos or, you know, once in a while you'd get, a, a, a you know, concerts from the UK or whatnot. And we try to do as well, sort of emulate what we saw and sort of have that rock star air about us, you know, mm. you know, music at the beginning. And then we walk out on the darkened stage and then, ah, you know, the whole grand, uh, grand illusion, really. Mm. And, um, that's sort of, you know, people were blown away by that because they hadn't really seen anything of that nature at that time. Well, Bjork, so after, was Bjork around at that time? She was around, but she wasn't Bjork. Mm. She, was, uh, she was in sort of punkish bands and, you know, they only had uh, their small little following. So, no, she wasn't Bjork. And the Sugar Cubes hadn't been formed. Hadn't, I don't think they had been formed that, at that stage. I may be wrong, though. They, 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 but they weren't really sort of, they weren't known as such. And so, so, um, so great. Yeah. So you, you do the first gig and then what happens? Well, we got a great write up and then we, you know, a couple of weeks later, we did another concert at another place and that went really well. And so because again, you know, um, it was to our advantage that Iceland was so isolated that, you know, there wasn't a whole hell of a lot going on. So if you put up an event, people will come, really. Mm. And you just better hope that, you know, people like it, because if not, you know, you're done. Mm. Um, but we were lucky, you know, we had rehearsed, you know, we rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, and, um, you know, we didn't really have any kind of a life 
beyond that because we were so we were so committed to this. So we would rehearse from early in the morning to late at night, you know, weekdays and even on the weekends, and then we'd go into the studio and whatnot. And, and then we from there we just you know we sort of tried to uh, grow our brand in Iceland with the, with the mission or sort of the uh, the intent of you know presenting it overseas uh, to London to the record companies in London mm. and then we started sending out cassettes and whatnot and then by you know, post started, to London yeah yeah by post and we'll cover letter and a cassette and a photo and stuff like that quite funny, very primitive today, but, um, and, you know, we'd get the rejection letters and we'd be like, oh. <laughs> and then, um, we, there was an Icelandic guy who had been in a, a synth pop band, you know, his name's Jón. Um, and, um, he had, he was part owner in a studio and he believed in us. So he wanted to record a four, four song demo with us. And he would provide the studio for us, but he could only do it at night when there were no clients. So maybe from 11 or 12 to like six, seven in the morning. Mm. So it wouldn't cost anything. And then we did that. Um, back in those days, there was no digital. It was, uh, it was two inch tape, everything analog, 24 tracks. And, um, and which was quite expensive to buy those tapes, by the way. And then, uh, so we recorded that, but it quickly became sort of, uh, we were like, well, you know, these songs, we should do more than demos here. We should try and make them as good as we possibly can. And then we started talking about, well, we, and when we're done here, because nobody mixes in Iceland at the time, mm. like you could get a mix in England, we started sort of saving up money to, to go to London and mix the four songs in London, which we did. So we finished recording and we decided to go to London and mix it we had uh, through friends uh some of the sugar cube guys they had been working with a guy named danny hyde in london who was sort of a great engineer and um you know we sent him some material and he liked it he said yeah i'll mix you and work with you and so we did and we went over there to mix and at the time you know I think this is what early 85 we had just gotten credit cards credit cards had just been produced and so when we went over the mix, we actually did it on our credit cards because we had no money. We, we had enough to fly over and stuff, but there was hotels and food and pay for him and da, da, da. So that was on our credit cards. And long story short, that got mixed. And by that time, we'd also done a whole bunch of gigs in Iceland. And so we had become, you know, we were, we were amassing quite a following in Iceland. And so the record, we did a big ado about the record coming out on November 15th, which was my birthday in 1985. And, you know, it was a big event because, you know, again, people, a lot of people thought we were foreigners because of the way we looked. You know, we did that whole sort of the photo shoot thing, the, the, the new romantic look and style. And then the album didn't sound like anything that was going on in Iceland at the time. And so, um, yeah, we became quite popular. And at that time, um, so you're, you're, you're following, are you following the kind of new romantic or have you moved away from that style of music or would you, how would you describe your music? Yeah, uh, well, you know, it's, hmm, it depends on who you talk to. I mean, mm. you know, uh, it's definitely, it was definitely sort of, it started out as sort of the new romantic thing. But by the time we were getting into new romantic, 
it was a new romantic was already sort of faded out you know exactly but, yeah but we didn't know that because we were getting our stuff so late mm. um but then you know just by you know uh other influences started to seep in both for me and for the keyboard player gully who uh is also a very prolific songwriter um fantastic uh sort of songwriter really and and but you know we we have sort of different influences um and um sort of that that started to have an effect on us because you know we started to get away from the new romantic thing and started focusing more on crafting really what we thought were good songs and um and by this time we were listening to bands uh like talk talk and simply red and you know david sylvian from uh his solo stuff and we really liked it because it was really sort of well thought out well crafted different and we sort of that start, started to influence us as well but um so you're at the point now where you're you're on the edge of getting a recording contract you're looking for a recording contract or where are, well, where are you we're looking for a recording contract but what had happened was <clears throat> i was told about this entrepreneur Icelandic entrepreneur who was doing uh, really who's adventurous he had been sort of um he had been working with a famous Icelandic band doing uh as an uh, executive producer on their doing movies and music and whatnot and I heard he was really sort of he was adventurous and so I don't know I don't know where I got the balls from but because I was very shy very introverted but I I asked for a meeting with him he was also doing at that time he was introducing sort of the latest pc computers to iceland so he was sort of a jack of all trades doing all kinds of stuff mm. and i asked him for a meeting and he he agreed to take a meeting and i went to you know i don't know what what set me off but i was just like i was like the salesman from hell you know i just i sat down in front of him he said at his desk and i just sold him you know the goods i said look we had, we're this band we're determined to go all the way we have the music we have the da, da, da. we're going to you know go to england we're going to do a b c and d you know mm. and i'm here to offer you to be part of it you know do you really want to be the guy that turned rickshaw down like the guy that turned the beatles down mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know so <laughs> i don't know where i got the balls to do that at the time but you know i didn't even have new songs to um let him listen to i was just like well we've written this and i've written that and we're doing this and it's gonna sound like this and i my sales pitch worked so he signed us on well as a you know managerial sort of thing and so now we had backing to go to england which and we he, did he was he, based in london right or well think. he was based in a lot of places yeah he, he was he was based in london he was based in uh, norway uh and in Iceland he was all, all over the place um a sort of a, at the time he sort of very uh, much a mover and a shaker and had a lot of credibility mm-hmm. and um so now that we when we signed to him well we hadn't really signed it was actually just a handshake and um and then sort of things started to happen very quickly so we told he said what do you want and we told him we'd like to move to England we want to record in the best studios we want to do this ABCD and we have these songs and he's like okay I'll find the money and so he did and we we got busy starting to write songs um 
And then we go to England and, you know, we start recording. And again, Iceland is still much a novelty, even to English people sort of thing. You know, we Iceland had gotten into a, the Cod War back in 73. So mm. that was really what people rem- uh, remembered about Iceland and Icelanders, the Cod War. Um, so we get there and we're in these studios and we're recording. And little by little, you know, people start to take notice. Wow, these guys have some really strong songs or they can play decent musicians whatnot and and um so we found ourselves uh being able to hire really good sort of session people to to be on the album with us like for instance um when it came to backing vocalists we got uh tessa niles who's a big name or was a big name in uh, uh, uh background vocals did bowie duran stones eurythmics uh, Maggie Ryder, the same thing. She did Eurythmics, blah, blah, blah. So we were getting these, P.P. Arnold, we were getting these famous top-notch uh, um, backing vocalists through Danny Hyde, our, our our producer and engineer at the time. When he let them hear the stuff, they came in and they started to sing. And then we had Mark Felton, who was the harmonica player for Talk Talk. He came in and played for us. And, and then that started to grow and there was a buzz about us. And people were like, wow, you guys are going to be huge. You're going to be amazing. Mm. La, la, la. And then we found ourselves at Townhouse Studios, which was like, you know, Townhouse was the place at the time. It was one of the, we were in uh, some of you know, the Olympic studios, which, you know, Rod Stewart, the Stones, Beatles had been in. But, and then we were at Townhouse and we were there with, you know, Phil Collins was there and Heaven 17 and people were coming in going, oh, you guys are going to be amazing. You're going to be huge and amazing. And mm-hmm. Everyone's very friendly and we're on top of the world. Yeah. So you're drinking the Kool-Aid, basically. We're drinking the Kool-Aid and, you know, the helium is going to our heads. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, but then a funny thing happened on the way to forum. Um, and it's really a cliché. We had been, because we didn't have a contract, you know, it would say, well, at some point, we're going to need a contract. And we'd say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we we had already gotten advice from people saying, you know what, I don't care what happens, do not sign anything without um, legal representation. Some You have to have legal representation, someone to go over the contract and tell you what's what. Don't sign anything. And we were like, don't worry, we're not going to sign anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't have legal representation. Because they're expensive, you know. And also, um, apparently, like in the UK, it was illegal to sign anything unless you had had a lawyer go over whatever. But anyway, so we were in the studio for some weeks, and I was always at the helm with Danny. I mean, I was sort of co-producing this with him because I was also writing the melodies and the lyrics and the, and playing a few, you know, some of the instruments and blah blah blah. And, you know, I was very tired. So, you know, like say for instance, when if we were recording guitars, the rest of the band would go somewhere and they they you know go sightseeing in London, go to the pubs and have a good time. And then it was the keyboards. The rest of the guy, the keyboard player, would be in the studio, and he, the rest of the guys would go continue. I never got to do that. I was always in the studio. Uh, I didn't see any other sites in London, and uh, at the time I just saw the inside of the studio and then the bed at the house we rented. Anyway. So we've been doing that for uh, quite a while. I was exhausted. Then late at night, uh, one night, the manager comes in to the studio and he's, you know, he's got a multi-page contract in his hands, pulls that out, us out from the studio into a side suit and he says, listen, lads, 
you know, um, I have a big meeting in France tomorrow on your behalf, with a big major label, mm. and I need these signed. And we were like, no, 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 we can't sign. We haven't read anything. Yeah, the old, yeah, the old, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we, this one, I don't know, we can't sign. We need to look. And then it was just look, looked in my eye and said, look, I've come this far with you. Don't you trust me? I trusted you. Oh, yeah. Where's the trust? You know, no, no. And goes, and then, you know, I was like, well, you know, we, have, we can't sign something that we don't know about. I'm too tired. And he said, look, sign it now. And in the two, three days, if you don't like it, we'll tear it up and start over. I just needed to show at the meeting tomorrow. He goes, if you don't sign it, you might as well pack up now and go home because we're done. I need this for tomorrow. Otherwise, we're done. You just pack up and you go back to Iceland. Mm-hmm. And we sort of looked at each other and we were like, what choice do we have, you know? Had you read the contract at this point? No, we, no, it was, you know, it was, you know, we saw it, but it was, you know, legal jargon and it was like 10, 12 pages or 15 pages and we were tired and, uh, you know, I, so, but, you know, he, we trusted him and he said, he looked me in the eye and he said, um, I'm your friend, man. I've, I, you know, I trusted you. I've taken you this far. Trust me. You know, so, and that was, that was a lesson and experience that stayed with me for the rest of my life. Yeah, we signed. All four of you. All five of us, yeah. All five of you. Yeah. Under duress, really, because, you know, it was with a gun to our head, you know. Well, it is a classic trick, right? So the lawyer enters the building. You've got 24 hours to sign. You don't have time to think about it. You don't have time to read it. I need it because I've got to get X, Y, Z done on your promise, the earth, the moon. I mean, this is a, it's a familiar story um, in the creative industries um, because it's, it's, it's where it's the confluence of business meets artist meets young artist and young artist doesn't really know what they're doing. They have no experience of business. They have no legal experience. And then sometimes it can work well. Sometimes it doesn't. But in this case, what was it about the contract that you signed or what that, that was prohibitive or, or problematic? We signed away our publishing. We signed away our, uh, essentially our real estate. So we signed away all our rights. The publishing is your real estate. That's, you know, that's what, you know, that's what is what you have to hold on to. You know, for dear life. Now we, I, we didn't know that really. Yeah, we knew something a little, but again, you know, this is in the mid '80s, and there's no internet. That you, you can't research anything just like that. You have to go to the library or whatever, or, or hire someone for a lot of money. And so we, you know, we weren't that knowledgeable. And you know, we were just we were so focused on the music, making the music the best that it could be, and it was. And it was, sounded great. I mean, we were really every. It wasn't just us. Everyone is excited about where this band could go because mm-hmm. of the. We had the songs. We had the sound. We had the look. All that stuff for for that commercial sort of arena. Mm-hmm. And um, so we signed away our publishing, and then. In uh, perpetuity, little... like so. So you anything you write over an extended period of time is owned by management. Yeah. And. The sale of or is 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 up to the management. Um, when it gets airplayed, when it gets it's on the radio, the management team, the corporation gets the revenue, and then okay. So yeah, we we we, we essentially now we just worked for them. We we 
stood and sat as they dictated it. Um, yeah, we just worked for them, and you know they could, you know, they could throw us fifty pounds, and that was it. You know, we we could whatever they wanted to, and uh, you know, we had signed away all our rights, mm. and um, and so that left, you know, that was a really sort of uh, sobering moment when, because at the moment we just continued on, and then I received a phone call from my father, um, who you know he wasn't a lawyer, but he was a very sharp man and uh smart and <clears throat> i told him what i'd done and he was like oh my god you shouldn't have done that and i said yeah what, what was they do so well, what I else were him, you supposed to do well that's the thing Given you know, the scenario I mean, like yeah i mean it was literally was sign it and pack up now our goal so yeah so um it's a little hazy what happened next but he he, he saw the contract he and he was like my God, you've signed everything away. You just da, 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 da. We need to hire a lawyer. And we were like, oh, my God. So we hired a lawyer in London named David Gentle, who was one of the lawyer, many lawyers for, like, the Eurythmics and Bali and stuff. Super nice guy. Very knew exactly, you know, knew exactly what to do. And I think he put an injunction on the recordings or whatever at the time to stop it and you know, remember the guy said he would tear up the contracts with one or two days, and he did. And, he, and then he started to, well, no, and da, 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 I didn't really say that. You misunderstood. And I said, well, all of us heard it, and um, and so you know, uh, our lawyer at the time, David Gentle, he he uh, said, well, you know, no wonder he wants it. This is really good music, and I could, I mean, I could bring it to you know. X, Y, and Z, and they probably Sony Universal it. or other, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. So that started uh, a really sort of a, a, a downtime for us because uh, essentially we stopped recording anyway. We were our lawyer said you can't record anymore. So it was, you know, damned if you do and damned if you don't because you know we had inside. Why, can't, why can't you record? Because. Now we're contesting the contract, mm. and we don't want him to have anything to uh, sort of bargain with, mm. because at, because in the contract, I couldn't even sit down with an acoustic guitar and write a song in my room. It would be his. For how long? For you know forever. Perpetuity forever. Yeah, yeah. Under the name Rickshaw, what happened? Like. Could you could you have wriggled out of it? Change the band's name, change the identity. Like, no, no, because the 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 the, particip- the players are still the same. Right. Okay. Players are still the same. But what happened was is that, um, yeah, it was uh, it was a, not a good. It took us almost two and a half years of negotiating, mm. thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds in lawyers' fees and whatnot um, to. Um, get out of that and um by the time that you know by the time that was settled two and a half years later the music had become stale for us you know because we had continued writing sort of you know uh secretly and you know and the world was changing and so that that which is called the blue album Mm. um it um we, you know, once we settled, we settled it. But by that time, we had lost the bass player. He had quit, and um, and then, uh, 
yeah, the music just, it, you know, wasn't, we weren't passionate about the music at, at that time. It had grown stale to us. So, but we finished it and it got decent uh, reviews and stuff. But part of what was in that contract, you know, we had a song, a single, which was, uh, it was earmarked to be a huge single in the UK called um, Ordinary Day. And we had, you know, we had, we could uh, arrange it and mix it the way we wanted. Once we signed that thing, we had no more rights. And what they did, they took the multitracks of that song, I think they, either to Munich or and then to LA or whatever, and they had other guys play on it. Like, so, so all of a sudden there's a guitar solo and sound on it that is not part of the signature, our sound, and a keyboard player playing something that we would never have had. And so now there's a mix out there of, you know, that we had nothing to do with, a guitar player doing a solo that's not even in the band. It was that sort of stuff. You know, and that was, uh, that was very disconcerting and actually we were quite pissed off about that. I'd say so. I'd say yeah. so. Yeah. But why would they do that? What, what is the point of that? Well, I, because they, you know, it, it is very curious if you think about it. It's like a lot of times this happens in the creative world a lot. Music, painting, or maybe less painting, but in other things, you're screenwriting or whatever. You make something, people go, I love that. And now I want you to change it. You know? And so, oh, all of a sudden they know better. Maybe some do about what the market uh, requires or dictates or whatever. But I think it should be done uh, with the artist, not, you know, not exclude them, you know, so it, you don't even recognize, barely recognize your own work mm -hmm. but it, it is an odd thing that you know they're like they take the thing that they love and then they want to change it and screw with it or whatever well there's there's a commercial so for the people that are higher up the food chain and have experience are looking to sell this thing so they take the genesis of it they see there's something there and they're they're, they're trying to form it and shape it into something that's commercial and can generate revenue as well yeah. and it's about figuring out who to trust who the who the who the real players are the noble players the people um, with integrity. Um, you did meet somebody at that time who passed away, I think last year. There was a manager. Was there a manager in the United no, States? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, Mo Austin. Mo Austin. Yeah. I didn't meet him personally, but uh, yeah. But I just want to say what you were just talking about before we move on to that is that you know they 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 take something like that, that that you've already created and then they yeah they think they have the expertise or whatnot but you know mm -hmm. there's a there, there's a lot to be said for i think frank zappa spoke about it that you know in the early days when it was these guys you know big sharks sitting in their office with the the stogie or whatnot, they didn't know anything about music and they go oh, i don't know what this is but go ahead do it you know yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and now you know as the music became bigger and bigger you start getting all these experts and a and r men who think they know better and so they start, you know, and that's not necessarily true. Yeah, plus, you're another, you're just another spoke in the wheel a lot of times. Instead of, you know, when they'd sign a band, they'd see the long game. Like, oh, you know, this band will develop over time and become quite prolific or whatever, be great work. But now it's like, you know, try and get as many hits as you can out of them. And then when they're done, next mm -hmm. sort of thing. But, yeah, but, so. But every band from the Stones to the Beatles has horror stories yeah. when it comes to the business. I mean, the, the Stones had, a, if you read um, anything that, that Mick Jagger has said or anything that, that from Keith Richards' book, Life, 
um, they had some really difficult publishing uh, problems to, to, to get out of and get away from to continue their career, particularly the Stones in the 70s. They had to extricate themselves from a, from a problem. Um, but sorry, go ahead. You were going to say something there. But you're right. And so did the Beatles and mm. Billy Joel. And but the Beatles also had George Martin, who yeah. was creatively helping them and, 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 and developing them. Um, oh, he was a huge factor. Huge. Mm-hmm. Fifth Beatle. I mean, I saw a documentary about them the other day where it said, you know, when they were in that in Abbey Road, you know, it was a it was a candy factory. They they had access to everything they wanted. If you wanted, you know, a four piece string quartet or whatever, you could have it like that. Or you wanted this, you wanted that. You know, so they they were essentially in you know sort of a wonderland of and could experiment and stuff like that. But so let me see, where are we? Um, yeah, so. We get through the contracts and we, you know, we decide to continue working together, but the trust was gone, mm. right? The trust was gone and the, the sort of the, the good, you know, good vibe and the good feel or whatever. And, but we continued and that for us, the album was still, we had already written sort of starting to write for another album, which actually had a different sound than that album. But what had happened was now he, what he did was he, and I, I mean, I don't fault him in as much as I did in the, in the past because I thought really he really screwed things up at the time, which he did. But I don't think it wasn't out of it was more out of um, out of ignorance of what to do correctly. I, what I think happened is that once people heard the potential of the band, they started whispering in his ear, "Oh man, you got to make sure that you you know hold on to these guys and you should get him to sign the publishing." I don't think he had the, that knowledge at the time. I think he had good intentions in the beginning, but then he started listening to people that told him to do, do A, B, and C to, to make sure you own this, right? Mm-hmm. And so what he did was he was overzealous, and um, he, um, now I'm sure he'd tell a different story, but he was overzealous in some ways, and he'd, he'd sent out this, you know, the recordings to the majors. And one of the majors, uh, there were several that got back to us, um, that we passed on. The Warner Brothers was very keen, and uh, Mo Austin was at the helm then, a legend in the music business, Mo Austin and Robert Cavallo. And so, um, you know, I did a couple of conference calls to them. Oh, they called me and Iceland conference call, and we talked about things, and they were like, yeah, we love the music, we love the look, we love that. You guys could be huge, blah, blah, blah. And you know, were very excited about that. Um, giddy, even. And, um, and then the last call from Mo, he was like, look, you know, I'm disappointed to have to tell you this, but we actually have to back out because so many people, he, he was like, who owns the publishing? And I was like, we own our publishing. We got it back. And so he goes, well, whoever's at the helm of this is sending all kinds of people to all these different majors. And everybody's saying that they have the publishing to the band and that they are the manager of the band. So this guy, the original guy, he talked to these people and they go, everybody's trying to sell themselves, right? And they'd say, oh, no, I'm the manager of Rickshaw and I have their publishing. Mm-hmm. And he just said, you know, you're a massive legal headache waiting to happen. And unfortunately, we have to pass. And this is Mo Olsen, who's, who's the head of a major. Um, yeah, Warner Brothers. He, I mean, you know, Prince and I don't know. He, he had everyone. I mean, he was the guy. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. So this is, we're into the late 80s, so we're 87, 88 at this yes. stage, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, something interesting happened earlier in the 80s, right? Um, as the band was forming. Was it around the time the band was forming Iceland's first bank robbery? Yes. How, um, how was Rickshaw connected to Iceland's first bank robbery? You should ask. <laughs> um, well, I've never spoken about this publicly, but... Um, what had happened, Rickshaw was uh, formed, and, you know, we were just sort of in the trenches still. We were rehearsing day and night and um, sort of giving it our all and, and stuff. And um, What happened was, is I have a younger brother by a year and a half, and we were sort of raised like twins. We had the same room, bunk beds. Clothes. We were really raised like twins, but, you know, as we sort of started to slide in our teens, we became uh, sort of diverged into different things. I went into music and stuff. He just went another route, and it was a very troubling route. He was actually, he was always sort of, he's always into mischief uh, as, a, as a child and a young boy, and there's always something going on with him, and and so one day, you know, or one evening, it's all in the news that there's been Iceland's first bank robbery. And we're like, wow, and a masked man, and, you know, came out with a sort of shotgun and aimed it at these two guys that were bringing the, the money from the, that day's take. In Iceland, there wasn't, you know, there weren't liquor stores. That it was government-run sort of liquor monopoly. And at the end of, you know, Friday, he he they would bring it to sort of the night deposit box outside of a bank. And he had gotten that information when he was on a trip uh, from another Icelander who worked in that store. And they were drinking him, uh, this this uh, guy that worked there, and my brother and his friend. And they're having drinks, and, blah, 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 and he tells them everything. He tells them the schedule, how much, what to look for and everything. Um. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know what what possessed him to do it, but I uh, made him think it was a great idea. But he, my brother and his friend, decided to do this robbery, and it was an armed robbery. It was very dangerous. And they, I mean, they pointed loaded. He pointed a loaded shotgun at these two um, these two guys that were making the deposit. He even shot their uh, tire out, and. Um, and so, you know, he made his getaway and blah, 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 and he got away. And now all of a sudden it's all over the news that there's this hunt for this, uh, for this violent, dangerous bank robber. And for the first time ever, you know, it's introduced in the news that the, the Icelandic police now actually have a SWAT team. which Nobody knew. I mean, Icelandic cops were never armed or anything. And now we have these armed cops, SWAT team, you know, scouring looking everywhere for this armed robber, a dangerous armed robber. And um, I come home from practice one night, and it's in the news, and I'm like, wow, that's, ama- that's unbelievable. Nobody could believe it. But in fact, you know, there was sort of, uh, you know, sort of a tongue-in-cheek thing that some Icelanders said. You know, they thought it was good because liquor was very expensive, hard to get, and, you know, they, a lot of them felt, they, you know, good, good that somebody got some of the money back. At the time, before Robin Hood type of thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. A few days later, I don't remember, it's all kind of blurry, but a few days later, you know, my father says, hey, 
your cousin is getting married back in New York. I'd love for you to, me, you, and your younger brother, we should go. Your mother can't make it, blah, blah, blah. We should go. And I was like, wow, really? He goes, yeah, I'll pay for it, everything. We're going to my wedding. And I was like, fantastic. So we go to the airport. You want to hear this part, right? So we go to the airport and, uh, you know, we, it was the old airport, uh, not the, the one that people see today when they go to travel license, but we're in the old airport and we, we check in, our bags, everything, and we're sitting in the cafeteria and it's loaded with passengers waiting for the, you know, the call to, to, to go board. And we're, you know, we bought a sandwich and coffee or water or Coke or whatever. And we're having a chat. And then all of a sudden I notice we're the only ones sitting there. Everybody's gone. We hadn't noticed. And I say, I said to my father, I said, um, did they just, you know, did they just announce that they were boarding? And all of a sudden we see we're surrounded by armed men, you know, with um, a lot of them with sort of the masks and SWAT masks and the, the whatnot. And it was surreal. You know, it's like, like a scene from a, a you know, South American movie or something, you know, um, Nicaragua or something like that. And then um, uh, plainclothes policemen come up and they say, get up, you're being charged with a robbery, bank robbery, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what? Are you crazy? What's wrong with you guys? You know, and I was like, we're going to miss our flight. And uh, I was I was livid, but I was shocked at the same time. I, it was surreal, really, because you couldn't believe it was happening. I mean, nothing can prepare you for something like that. And uh, long story short, we were we were arrested, we were handcuffed, my father included, and we were driven back to Reykjavik in separate cars, which at that time was a 40, 45 minute journey. And then we were brought to, um, we were brought, uh, to the, um, brought into uh, sort of our Scotland Yard type of thing for questioning and and I was so livid I couldn't believe you know I thought I I looked upon them as being sort of the keystone cops you know I'm going what, what kind of bumbling idiots are you you know yeah your brother you and your brother they accused me you and your brother robbed the bank and I'm like are you, you know are you insane and um, you made us lose our flight you're going to pay for the tickets I mean that's how angry I was but they kept us there for hours and hours um until it was dark, I think it was like 11 or 11.30 at night, and they said, okay, get up. Uh, and then they ferried us to uh, this jail, which is a solitary confinement jail. And there we were just put in. I mean, I didn't get, I didn't see my father, I didn't see my brother. But they, you know, they put us in solitary confinement, which is really, you know, what you think it is. It's just, you know, a steel door with a, la- you know, a little window for food or whatever, and, and then there's just a mattress and a, uh, you know, not even like, yeah, a table, a lone seat and a, a light on 24 hours and no window except at the, the top, which is fog window. So you can't see out, but you can see if it's daylight or dark. And, um, you know, there I was for, the, you know, for the more than a week, I think eight or nine days. And so, um, did you have any suspicion that it might be your brother at this stage? No, not at all. Never. I thought they. Were, I know. I thought they were completely insane. I, yeah. I, yeah, I just didn't. It's no way. Um, although, which is kind of weird in hindsight, because my brother, you know, 
lot of times he was up to no good. He he had issues. He had problems. But I just didn't. I just didn't put it together because this was such. A, again, you got to remember this is isolated Iceland. Two hundred fifty thousand people, one television station, one radio station, which is government owned and run, and you know, and so this is the big news. There's no internet. There's no online. There's nothing. This is it. And then you, we know. Um, then you find out, you know, our names are all over the paper, and in the front pages. And you know, there's only one Scobie family in Iceland. You know, because uh, in Iceland people go by patronyms, so the, they're either the daughter or the son of the father's first name. We didn't have that. We had a family name, Scobie. So, you know, that's just that one family. But while while I'm in uh, solitary confinement, you know. I mean, I'm really an inexperienced young kid. I didn't know what what had hit me. And the funny thing about solitary confinement is that um, you start to, you know, you'll doze off at some point. And when you wake up, you don't know if you just dozed off for a second or a minute or five minutes, ten minutes, or if you slept for an hour or all day. So when you wake up, you have no sense of time or or time of day or anything. And... um, you know, I was in shock, and they'd offered me something to eat every day, but I, you know, it was something nasty, and I was like, no, 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 and I didn't eat for th- the first three days, and then the fourth day, I was like, but um, after a while, you know, it's it's uh, sensory deprivation, you start to, uh, you know, start to go a little crazy, I mean, you, you know, I was like, you start to imagine things, because there's no sound, there's no, you know, you don't see anyone except when they bring the food, and me, I started to imagine, you know, that they had forgotten about me. Um, or there had been a world war or something, and, and uh, you know, what if the world was ablaze and nobody knew of us in there or whatever? And so, um, yeah, I started to, you know, I was, I tell you the truth, after I don't know how many days and, uh, you know, being so isolated and your mind starts playing tricks on you, I, I mean, I was, I was to the point, because again, I'm a, just a young guy, you know, not hardened or anything, and it's like, uh, I was ready to, to admit to the Kennedy shooting, you know, being the, on the grassy knoll. Yeah, I was on the grassy knoll. I was ready to admit anything just to get out. Yeah. So after about eight or nine days or ten days, I'm not sure. I think it was nine days, but uh, they let me out. They let me out, and I find out right away that my brother has admitted to the crime. And I just couldn't believe it. I was floored. And then when I get home, I get to see all the newspapers and our name is plastered everywhere. It's on the evening news. It's in the uh, news at, at noon. It's everywhere. Scobie's bank robber, blah, 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 blah. And um, it's just, it's surreal. I mean, you're just numb. You can't believe it. It's just like, it's like you've been hit over the head and you're just in shock. And, uh... and my whole f- yeah. What was the what, what your brother obviously faced a trial and, and spent some years in jail? Then I, I would assume. Yeah, yeah. He well, he admitted. To, he finally broke down. He admitted. You know, he sort of. You know, he admitted that it was him and another guy. The other guy was the lookout, and da 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 da. And and they kept my father, uh, which I was very angry about because they they said he was an accomplice uh, after the fact. But what had happened was is that my father. Um, was livid. I heard learned later he was livid, but he had fought in a war, mm. and so he knew. You know, all of a sudden, this uh, say in the news saying that you know they had these uh, 
had the SWAT team running around with with you know automatic rifles or whatever. He knew he knew what you know these guys were just itching to shoot at something. That was was his experience. Mm-hmm. So his plan was to uh, get Will out of the country. But so it was, because it would look weird, it was just him and my father leaving. They decided to include me, and um, so it was to get him out of the country and then return the money anonymously. You know, wow. uh, he was just trying to save his son, um, but he 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 got I think got probation two and a half years, but my brother got four and a half years if I remember correctly, and he did most of that time in Iceland. Hmm. Um. That's an. Ex- that's, what kind of effect do you think those eight or nine days in solitary co- confinement has on a person? Like, what what does it do to you? Are you ever well, the same again? Um, that's a good question. Honestly, no, I don't think so. To be quite honest, um, there's a certain innocence that leaves you. Um, also, the shock. I mean, you just, there's nothing that prepares you for that because I had no clue. And all of a sudden, I'm whisked away by armed people, thrown in a hole, and there I am, you know. And um, once I was released, you know, I I faced a completely different society than the one I had left at when I went to the airport. So now, you know, with the name Scobie, we were lepers. But we also, lepers. You're, you're, you're in rickshaw at this time. I'm in rickshaw, and the thing is, is that, you know, at the time, I just tried to, you know, th- there was no, there was no talk about, uh, you know, dealing with sort of the, the fallout from this. You just had to man up. But I, I mean, I had, uh, to be honest, I had, I had nightmares about it years afterwards of being locked up, locked in, something like that again, and not getting out. And yeah, I had nightmares for years actually, and um, and then having to sort of face. Um, Face the music, you know. In a lot of ways, pardon, my pardon. brother. Yeah. No, in a lot of ways, you know, my brother got off light because he was just he was in jail for forty years. We had to face mm. the community, and there was nowhere to go. I mean, again, Iceland was very was very isolated. It was very expensive to go anywhere, and uh, this really broke my father and my mother. And uh, we were getting, they, they were getting, you know, death threat phone calls in the middle of the night, get out of our country. You know, I had uh, other siblings who were fired from their jobs and, you know, or, or, or uh, ousted from their, wherever they were living. And then they had to try and find another place to live and nobody would rent to them because of their name or their, you know, being a, a SCOBY. And there's, there's and only so, 300,000 people in Iceland. Well, so, at this point, there's only 250,000. Yeah, it's 250,000. I think now we're 350,000 today, but back then it was 200 to 250,000, 220,000, 30,000. So this is, and, um, this, is a, this is a small town America, basically, in terms of population size. I mean, there, there are small towns in America that are bigger than that. And we got to feel it. Yeah. It was, um, it, you know, I mean, like I said, I've never spoken about it publicly, but it was a really, really sort of, it was a very difficult time. And it was a time where you sort of, um, you know, I don't know, it just somehow went into battle mode, you know. I was not, me personally, because you say the picture and whatnot, I was not going to, you know, let anyone, because I wasn't going to let 
quote unquote, one bad apple ruined the whole bunch. I mean, I have very decent, I have a decent family and decent siblings and a decent parents. And I didn't want us to be, you know, sort of tainted by that. But there was, I mean, it's a, it's an uphill battle and it still is even today. Um, it's a stigma that carries with you for the rest of your life. I mean, we're in the history books in Iceland where it's a law, it's a, it's a, it's a chapter in the law books of Iceland, that whole thing. So there's no getting away from it, um, essentially. Something, and, uh, something has happened with your uh, microphone, Rich. Just check your microphone for a second. Can you hear me? Yeah, that, that's slightly better. Yeah, again, let me bring it closer. So, yeah, start again. So, to talk, talk about the, the something uh, in the history books, in the law history books. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, this was such a huge... Uh, huge matter in Iceland and it's always been called the first armed robbery bank robbery and um, and so it's in the history books you know the history books in Iceland you know if you go into the things that are called Eldenaka, the century that just passed or whatever you know the whole chapter about you know the first bank robbery and our names and everything and pictures and whatnot and then you know that case the when we went to trial that case study is part of you know this chapter or two in the law books of, in, in teaching at the University of Iceland in law for students. I'm not sure what, what it is that they delve into, but I, you know, I've, I've, I've been told numerous times that it's a, you know, it's a couple of chapters in the, in the law school. So you, you go through the trial. Um, how long does the trial last? Oof, I should have done my research. I completely forget. It, it, it seemed like to take forever. Um, it was just, you know, it really was, you know, it was like you, the walk of shame everywhere you went. It was all of a sudden because, you know, there were pictures of us. And I mean, so, it's, you know, the trial, I, I'm sure it didn't last that long, but it seemed to last forever. I mean, it was a, it was an open and shut case. They made, he admitted it. And, you know, so they just presented their case and the evidence and then it was just, he was sentenced. And so it was my father to probation. But my father had been a very sort of uh, respected businessman in Iceland. Had a lot of friends, and a lot of things going on. But after that, he was dead in the water. Nobody wanted anything to do with him. And, you know, it broke him. It, it broke him uh, spiritually, financially, in every way you can imagine, because he was a very proud man and a strong man. But there was no way he could fight this. And we didn't have the resources to, to leave Iceland at, the, at this juncture. Because in those days, you know, it was very expensive uh, to buy a flight to. That's why I was so blown away that I was being invited to New York. But it was very expensive to, uh, you know, most people, the average person had to, you know, put on their Sunday best and go to the bank manager on their knees and ask for a loan so they could buy a ticket or get that extra money to do things like that, you know, fly somewhere or whatever they needed to do. And and so we, we didn't have that option anymore. And so we were really we were stuck. We couldn't go back to the United States. Not that I really wanted to, but there was nowhere to hide, essentially. Did your father rebuild a new business? Did he get an opportunity to recover in any way financially? No, no. You know, for he was, my father was always a very strong, I mean, to me, my father was John Wayne, and he was. He was strong, smart, resilient man, you know, he was, he was six, four, he'd fought in the war. I mean, he was a macho guy. Blah, blah, blah. And after that, he was just completely 
broken, mm. completely broken. And then, you know, he, um, he wasn't that, you know, it was only a year or two later that, no, it was a little more, but it's, you know, he started to get ill and, blah, 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 and then he was diagnosed in, I think, 87, that he had cancer of the colon and then he had a big operation. And then uh, in 88, late 88, they said that he was terminal and then he, he had six months to live and he only had two months to live. And I mean, he was just a shadow of a man that he had been after this. And things were never, ever, ever the same for us. And so still aren't. How long after the trial was the, was the cancer diagnosis for your father? What time, time frame are we talking about? I would say maybe four and a half years. But if I'm, if I'm going to be honest, I would say that, um, you know, as strong as my dad, the humiliation was complete. Mm-hmm. And I th- really think he wanted to die. I think he just wanted out because he had nowhere to go. There was nothing, he had nothing to build from or nothing to build on. He had no resources. It was just, the humiliation was incredible. And, you know, he was always proud of the name. I mean, he used to, Scobie used to talk about, you know, Scottish Welsh and, you know, where we came from and all this stuff. He was very proud of that. And now, you know, one in, one thing, and uh, just like the knock at the door from the drummer, just one thing, and then, uh, and now our lives are changed forever. Not for the, not, and not for the better, you know? So did the society and the community wasn't able to separate one person from the family, right? So, no, no, I mean, there are some really, uh, of course, there are decent people mm. who did stand by us. and um, But for the most part, yeah, there were some really good friends and sort of that stood with us and, and, and but, you know, knew what we were going, sort of saw what we were going through. But on the whole, I think, and this is anywhere, I think just people... It's much easier just to sort of, you know, lump everyone together, you know. Yeah. Uh, so. Plus, in a story, a story like that is is nuanced. It's complicated. It's nebulous. It's hazy, um, and it's just easy. It's easier for people to say, "Okay, well, that family did this crime." Well, no, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but. Trying to explain that, trying to get people to understand that can be difficult. Yeah, because, um, it, and it is funny because, you know, as I said earlier, um, when people find out about the robbery, a lot of people were like, yeah, good, good on them, you know. But once they found out that it was, you know, uh, what, was, what was perceived to be foreigners, then it wasn't good. Outside you know, the tribe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, outside the tribe, and which I mean, I'm born in Iceland. I consider myself Icelandic, which I am, and and that felt very hurtful because we were, I mean, we, I, really, we were, we became lepers. But I, you know, I was always, I was determined to fight back. And I remember at one point, um, this was when we started to sail towards more uh, playing rock and roll. My influences were coming more through in the music and. After the Blue album, we did another album um, called Angels and Devils, which was more rock-oriented. And I had longer hair. I had to let my hair grow out. And, you know, sometimes I had a beard. Sometimes I didn't, but I had the long hair. And I had a leather jacket, which I had hand-painted in New York. On the back, I had an angel and devil. 
sort of the yin and the yang thing. Mm. But I also had the SCOBY name put on the left arm in big white letters, SCOBY. And I used to walk around town with that thing on. Instead of sort of burying my head in the sand, I was like, you know, fuck you, I'm going to, this is who I am. And some, it was some backlash to it. Uh, there would be, you know, who do you think you are? You know, who, you know, have you no shame? And da, da, da. And again, I was like, fuck you. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> uh, who are you to judge? You don't even know the story. Um, you don't even know what went on. And, and yeah, so, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it, it was an uphill battle from there, to say the least. And do you think then that, so the band knows all about this is going on. Did it have any impact on the band, your bandmates, in terms of how they interacted with you? Or did they suddenly not trust you? or was, was No, they were fantastic. They were fantastic. As a matter of fact, I was blown away at how supportive they were. Um, they even came to where I was, uh, when they found out that I was in solitary confinement, they went to that place, stood outside and yelled my name, going, hey, man, we're with you, blah, blah, blah. Stay strong. I didn't hear it. I was told about it later. But they, they never wavered at all. They would never hesitated. They were always, they, they were my friends. They were, uh, they, yeah, they supported me all through it. And they, you know, and, and they loved my family. They, you know, those guys loved my parents. They knew my parents they came home for dinner and all that. So they knew, you know, that my, my parents were hardworking, honest people, you know, mm-hmm. that unfortunately got caught up in, you know, my my younger brother's stupid stupid uh, decision of what he did, you know. How did your mother deal with all of this? Um, I would say she dealt with it like most mothers, you know, strong, very strong. My mom was very stoic. I guess uh, you know I get a lot of that from my mother as well. That sort of that pride thing. It's like other people feel that you should hang your head in shame. That's when you, you know, you, you put your chest out and your head up high and you walk down the road like you own it, you know? Um, so she was, you know, she was definitely the glue that kept the family together. Mm. So when my father was going through that utter humiliation and sort of being, going from being well-revered and respected uh, in Icelandic society to, you know, essentially scum of the earth, she was the glue that held, held the family together and was very strong throughout. Um, your brother left Iceland later, right? And yes, he left Iceland. My brother's never been one for facing the fire, really. Um, I don't think he has the, um, the capacity and the tools, you know, um, it's it, with him, it, you know, anything that's uncomfortable or whatever, he, through, throughout, he's always tended to sort of shy away from it and run away. So when he left and he went back to the States, which was more familiar ground to him and sort of an escape, you know, the rest of us were left there to still, you know, deal with the fallout. And so a funny thing, uh, sort of not funny, but, but an, uh, uh, um, the curious thing sort of 
happened along the way as I was making, you know, doing the music and, you know, I was doing television shows and, you know, radio interviews and, you know, we were doing albums, did another album and videos and, you know, we'd go into, we opened up for acts like Simply Red and Finding Cannibals and, and Madness and, and uh, Bonnie Tyler, um, to name a few. And I was doing that, but... Um, um, I'm sorry, what was the question? So your brother left Iceland, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, so I remember. So what happened in that time was uh, because he was not around, he was non-existent, mm. that through t throughout, as time went on, somehow it morphed together that I was, yeah, I was the, the well-known musician and all that, but I also became the bank robber. So a lot of people started to associate me that I was the bank robber, not my brother, because he left. He left Dodge, mm. and um, so I was left there uh, to deal with that. And the funny thing is, is that um, there had been another bank robbery a, a few days before, and that guy got away with it. And the police thought I did it for some strange reason. Um, but I, you know, I had an absurd alibi. Um, my brother and I had gone to the movies during that bank robbery, and we were the only ones in the, in the theater. There was no one else. But I was able to show the ticket stub. And they were like, well, you could have gotten that anywhere. So for a very long time, they thought I had, I don't I mean, it's so, it's such an odd and surreal thing to go from being just, just you know, essentially still a kid, you know, to all of a sudden being considered a notorious mastermind some kind of bank robbery and that that's in our blood somehow, you know? Mm. But what I don't but, understand uh, is why would anybody think you could get away with a bank robbery on a tiny, well, a, a little island like Iceland. It's a huge island, but it's a tiny community. Like getting away with something like that is just, it's nigh on impossible. And morally, well, he, forget the moral and principle aspect. Yeah. I mean, practically, it's just, how, why would you do that? It's so crazy. Well, I mean, uh, again, if you knew my brother, um, he just, you know, he, there are learning disabilities there and, and whatnot. And there is a whole, a whole host of issues that, um, I mean, if, if it happened today, he would have been uh, diagnosed with all kinds of stuff. Mm. You know what I mean? Because now we're a lot more, we're more knowledgeable about, you know, all these different things that, Mental mental illness and whatnot. Mm. So if he had done it today, he would be diagnosed, and it would be part of the process. It would be uh, it would be a factor. Back then, he was just Billy the Kid, and, and you know, mm -hmm. and at the time, you know, in a lot of ways, I tell you a funny thing, you know, because we moved to the states, we were just thankful that he didn't do it in the states because he had, you know, this was a fantasy of his, obviously, and that if he had done it in the states, he would have either a been shot to death, or he would have done some real hard time, mm -hmm. you know. So four and a half years, even though that was considered, you know, a hard time in Iceland, you know, that, that was a slap on the wrist, really. And and in an odd way, we were, as a family, we were relieved that he did get caught because who's to say that he wouldn't have kept going? Mm -hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. You know, not that we were relieved, but, you know. Mm -hmm. And today in Iceland... Is it is it is it just a part of history, a, a distant part of history, that whole experience, or is it something that's that follows you? Yeah, it follows me. 
I um, I mean, it is part of distant history, and there's a whole new generation that know nothing about it and whatnot. But you know, the people my age group and, and older remember it. And um, I think I told you the other day, I mean, we did a, a an interview with an Icelandic uh, newspaper. They wanted to find out what my wife and I were doing in Denmark and da da da. And then you know, we did a video sort of call like this, and, and she you know she was. Very sort of positive stuff, but she started right away by saying, "Oh yeah, go with you." And then listen, da, 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 da. you're the bank robber, right? So, yeah, not a not a not a great way to start an interview. And I was like, "No, you obviously didn't do enough research." But that's what's happened. It's sort of I've, I've sort of I'm carrying that monkey on my back a lot of times. So. At this point, rickshaw. So you, you you're getting back to rickshaw, right? So you you you're opening up for Bonnie Tyler. Talk talk. Could you say you are? Um, no 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 no. Not talk talk. Yeah, we opened up for Finding Cannibals, Like Calling Promotions, yeah. Madness, Simply Red. You know, Simply Red. Wow. In London or, or Iceland or where? No, when they came to Iceland. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a pretty big deal. Yeah yeah yeah. We were. I mean, you know. Well, all all modesty, you know, we were, uh, you know, we were in the t- top of the heap kind of thing, mm. along with a few others. Yeah, um, we were also sort of, you know, because we were the bad Icelandic band that everybody thought was a foreign band, but we were so ambitious that our goal. You froze, Rich. Hmm, that's odd. Now you're back. You're back. Yeah. Where did we end? So you're you're opening up for. We're talking about you're you're opening up for all these bands, these excellent bands. So you're you're kind of you're doing really well, and you're like top of the heap in Iceland, right? Yeah. One. Well, yeah. Pretty much. You're you're up there. You're doing well. How does how did it end for Rickshaw? Well, it ended. Uh, Essentially, like because of that, you know, the the contract negotiations. I mean, uh, it took it took a lot out of out of the band. It took two and a half years. It took a lot of money, and sort of when the bass player decided to to quit, um, you know, we decided to to move on, keep going, and, and do another album, which we did, um, which was mixed in Los Angeles. And it, I mean, uh, it's an album that I'm very proud of. But for somehow it was a we were we weren't a cohesive unit anymore. We were broken, and so you know, in way because we had had to go work on other other things, maybe play with different groups separately. A lot, a lot, we started to grow apart, mm. which is you know, normal. Uh, it, you know, it was it was uh, it was just sort of the natural course of things. I mean, it's hard to keep. It was hard to keep your eye on the ball when it you know it had been turned so sour. That sort of thing, and so uh, after Angels and Devils, we did that. I, I mean, I'm actually very proud of that album. Um, we mixed it in LA, as I said. Eric Silver um, did a fantastic job and got some really good um, interest in that album as well. But um, again, you know, I was I was linked to someone, a New York lawyer at the time, who was a big big lawyer. You know, he was representing me, but he was also uh, sort of 
t- negotiating his own deals at my expense sort of thing. Mm. So again, it was again, it was Warner Brothers. This time it wasn't Mo Austin, it was somebody else. But this time again, it, it turned sour. I mean, I didn't sign anything, but I wasn't willing to sign away all my publishing. And, you know, and that's so one of the p- recurring pitfalls through this, that mm. if you have something that people want, whether it be, you know, music or book or script or whatever, and they want more than they have coming to them, that's a huge red flag. I mean, you know, you, some will say, well, you know, everybody's been down that road. It's the price you pay to, to get your lucky break. And, you know, that may be, that may be all, all good and fine, but depends on sort of for me, I just, I have such a strong sense of right and wrong. And for someone to come in and want every, all your hard work and own it, so they leave you with nothing other than, you know, you just have to keep scrambling for whatever for a few years. I just I just find that offensive, you know, and um, I won't do it. I mean, just not too long ago, uh, a year and a half ago, on another on another thing where I was uh, a script that I had written, um, a rock and roll sort of story, and I'd, I'd written the music for the film. It's sort of, uh, it's uh, about... Sort of the commitments only old geezers trying to re sort of relive their ancient fame. And uh, I'd written all the music, and it sort of, you know, negotiation had gone well, everything seemed fair and about board. And then, sort of towards the very end, you know, they wanted all my publishing. And I was like, no, the I, I don't know. was I, hinging, a, a green yeah. light potential here is hinging on you signing over publishing. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, it, it was essentially greenlit. I mean, been negotiating for months. They had their lawyers. We were going through. I mean, they have gone really well until at the very end, they wanted all my publishing. And I was like, no. Mm. Uh, you know, I, but I was even willing to negotiate part of my publishing. Mm. But they didn't want that. They wanted all of my publishing. So <clears throat> from those first years with the rickshaw, mm. I have found that to be sort of a common thread through most negotiations. And you could say that's been my downfall. In, in that sense that I haven't, you know, uh, gotten to where I set my, set my sights on is because I wasn't willing to, you know, do whatever it took to get there. I just think that it's such a nasty, foul thing to, because, you know, the artist is where everything springs from, whether it be the, the, the script or the book or whatever, that's where everything springs from. And to want to take that from the artist, that's all they have, you know. That's what they have. And so that I, would, I would say that's definitely for, you know, sort of burgeoning up-and-coming artists in any, in any genre is, yeah. you know, know what, you know, how far you're willing to go. Yeah. You know, how, what are you willing to sacrifice to get what you want? Now, sacrificing everything doesn't mean automatically that you'll get what it is you want. Mm. Um, I, I would have another perspective on this as well, right? So... In terms of screenwriting, you have the IP, the, the finished script, say it's a draft three or whatever. In terms of music, you have the songs. When somebody comes to you, and for young artists, for young writers, for young musicians, for somebody successful in the industry, a producer, an executive, and asks you for all of your publishing or for your IP, the, this is the start of a negotiation, not the end of it. Right? So that's where negotiating skills come into play here, right, for, for, for the young artist that's coming up. Don't assume that it's 
everything or nothing or the deal is dead. Perhaps there is a deal still to be done where you may give over a percentage of your publishing rights, but not all. And maybe you can find some middle ground. Would that make sense? Does that, that make sense? I, I, yeah, it sounds, it makes perfect sense. That's just not my experience. Mm. I'm sure there are people willing to do that for some reason. For the people that I've dealt with, through, and there have been many other deals, it's always been all or nothing, and it's been astounding. Um, I mean, there was another deal uh, when I was in Istanbul, Turkey, for another IP of mine, a script, a script and we you know, negotiated everything, and, you know, they wanted to make a big, uh, much ado about it, and they got the press there, and we were at a fancy restaurant and a booth, and photographers, and even made sure that we had Mont Blanc pens to sign the dotted line and all that stuff. And then as we're about to sign, the, the, the main guy goes, I want you publishing. This is That's going to be part of this. Mm. You know? So there's a pattern um, emerging here, though. It, it seems to be that right at the point of signing, the curveball comes in, and it's a big one. Right. It's, so it's as if the, the experienced executives, the producers, people who do this consistently, what they want is those publishing rights, but they leave it onto the very end just before you sign and just to throw that in there at the last minute to try and as if it's yeah. to grab it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, they, they expect that you've come this far. Yes. That you're, you're like, man, the hell with it, I'll, you know. I'm going to do it, and everything will be fine. Mm -mm. But, uh, you know, that experience with Rickshaw, the two and a half years, that was a, a bloody time. I mean, you know, we we had to do all kinds of gigs in, under other names da, 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 to try and uh, generate revenue to pay for the, the, the lawyers in London. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of money. It was a lot of, you know, it, it, yeah, it was, it was, it was, so that stayed with me and that, you know, I've always been very cautious. Maybe, maybe I've been too cautious, who knows, but you know what, at the end of the day, you have to be, uh, you have to be at peace with yourself. Mm. You know what I mean? And I, I know me, I would not be at peace if I felt like I, had, you know, let someone take advantage of me knowingly or even unknowingly. I just, uh, you know, I, I believe in fair play. I think there's enough to go around if you, if you're fair and the negotiations are fair and everybody gets a piece of it, you know, you move forward and everybody, everybody gets something. This, this thing about taking everything and leaving you with nothing, it's just, uh, for me, it's, it's uh, unconscionable. It's wrong. But also, as a young man, you, you were kind of burnt by that initial contract. So anytime oh, a new contract negotiation comes into play, what will trigger or what might cause stress would be something similar to, about to happen. So, um, yeah, well, I, I would definitely say that I've always been on high, maybe too much high on heightened alert. Alerts, you know? alerts, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like a hot on a, a cat on a hot tin roof sort of thing. You know, I'm just very, you know, you question people's motives and stuff. You know, but at the end of the day, though, you know, it's sort of maybe it's a cliche, but you know, the journey in Journey's been, it's been a bumpy road, but it, the journey has been fantastic in many ways. I mean, I've gotten to, to sort of uh, live things that were only in my dreams as a boy, you know. Uh, 
um, both in music and in the film business or whatnot. And I've gotten, I've been afforded and fortunate enough to experience things that most people only dream about. And so, you know, just to have had uh, a, a taste of it or, a, you know, been part of something for a little while and you don't, and, but at the end, you're not like one of the big players, you know, very few get to be the big players or uh, are sustainable, you know? It's the it's sort of most people fall to the wayside over time, or they get a little smaller piece of the pie, or whatever. But I, I, you know, and then there were years when I went through. I was very both depressed about it and bitter, very depressed. But as I've you know as I've gotten older and so more experienced and stuff, I've, I've learned to let things go and just be thankful. Really, I know it's a cliche, but I've learned to be thankful for the things that I have uh, had come my way and things that have been, I've been part of. And, but you, you also know. did, you, you moved to Los Angeles in the early 90s and you had a, you have a prolific career songwriting and, and musically host um, Rick Shaw. Mm-hmm. And you also transitioned into the film industry as well. So what, were your, what were your impressions of Los Angeles when you, you arrived there? It would have been the early 90s, right? Yeah, I actually, uh, I lived there twice. I moved there in 91 to write an album, my first solo album called X-Rated. Uh, I was there for 10 months or 11 months, and then I moved back in 96 and was there for uh, close to 10 years. Um, coming to L.A. is, you know, it's, it's, it's almost a dream come true. I mean, you, you see all these movies and shows about Hollywood, and you see the streets blind with palm trees and the Hollywood sign and the, you know, convertible cars and the beautiful guys. And I mean, beautiful guys and gals that are walking the streets. Everybody looks like, you know, uh, a model. Um, and um, it's just really like a dream factory. And you just, it's sort of overwhelming and you're like, wow. Um, then, then as you live there and you settle in and stuff, you know, you, you realize it's an industry mm of course, and that it, you know, it's not, it's very similar to the music business. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a machine and it just, you know, you fall into that pit and they just get sort of grinded out. If you you either make it or you don't, and most people don't. And if you do, then you're, you know, you're essentially like sperm. You're one in a trillion that sort of are lucky enough to make it and sort of navigate your way successfully to a to a, a good good existence there is my brother has spoken about an, the, the analogy he he used is that there's a helicopter flying over a ravine and there's millions and millions of people in the valley and the helicopter throws down a step ladder over the millions and millions and everybody is grabbing and trying to grab the bottom of the the rope ladder and the, yeah. the helicopter will wait for one person one person latches on and is gone yeah. And the rest, the millions are left to to climb over one another, and, and with all that kind of ensue, that that madness that ensues. Um, did you? Uh, what were your early years like? So you were writing music in Los Angeles, making music. Is that how you were? Is that how you're making your living? Essentially, as I'm, I'm asking. Yeah, yeah. I was still. I mean, I was. I was a working musician. Uh, funny. I I actually had gone to Eurovision. I was in Eurovision in '91. Uh, as a backup singer for my friend, for my two friends who were the leads there, we went to Rome and did Eurovision. Did Ireland um, win? I don't know. Huh? Did Ireland yeah, win? Prob- 
Arnold no, Rock. Sweden, Sweden won that Mozart, year. Rock, yeah. Carola. But what a trip. We went to Rome. We were at the Cinecita um, studios. studios. I had actually been asked to front for Iceland uh, by the head of the Icelandic Broadcasting Company for uh, two times. And I had said no because that, you know, it was such a stigma around it. And I, I was rock and roll. And so I, but when my friend won the competition and he asked me to come along, I was like, mm, kiss of death. And he's like, no, come on, you know, it's, we're going to Rome. And I was like, Rome, I'll take that. And it was just one of the best trips I've ever, you know, gigs I've ever had because it was so much fun. Uh, Rome was amazing. Cinecita, that whole thing. It wasn't, it wasn't the phenomenal uh, sort of circus it is today, you know, mm. but it was, it was very impressive and it was a lot of fun. And once I was done there, I, then I went to LA to write this, you know, get back to my rock and roll roots and write this album. Da, da, da. But it wasn't until I went back in 96 that it was just pure absence because by that point I had, I don't know how many albums, five or six albums, five, six albums under my belt and a bunch of videos and stuff. And they were like, wow, because they were high quality, high production value. And um, I knew somebody who uh, from New York, who, from when I lived in New York, he had moved to LA and he was trying to, he had teamed up with a guy named Donnie Ward who had some success uh, for an independent film called um, My Life's in Turnaround. And it was during that era when everything, all of a sudden, independent film was sort of making a name for themselves. You know, you could make a film for two, $300,000 and they would get picked up or whatever. So everybody, a lot of people were on that train for a while. And anyway, he said he was, uh, he had written a script called The Suburbans with uh, the director and one of the players, of Donnie Ward from uh, My Life's a Turnaround. And Ben Stiller was producing his company, Red Hour. And they were looking for, it was about a, a, a 70, no, an 80s comeback band, and they needed that 80s hit. And he asked if I wanted to come in and present, you know, try and pitch in a few songs. And I remember going to um, Donnie's uh, apartment at the time, which was in Larchmount, which is a, sort of a nice area in L.A., sort of a little village, Larchmount area. And at the time, his girlfriend was Michelle Williams, the actress, who then... You know, had a child with Heath Ledger and his one on the camp. Anyway, that was his girlfriend. And they were sitting on the couch with some other people, and I brought my guitar. And, you know, I brought a bunch of songs that I thought would, you know, would be great for the film, um, sort of more uh, sort of electric guitar-oriented, you know, sort of the pretenders, the romantics, that sort of thing. And nothing was happening, nothing. So I was like, well, that's it. You know, I started to pack up my guitar. He was like, are you sure you don't have something else? And oddly enough, the night before, I had written this idiotic sort of what I thought to be a bubblegum pop song. I mean, I wouldn't play it for anyone. But for some reason, I was like, yeah, I have this one little lame thing. It's about, let me hear it. So I played it to him. Uh, and he just lit up like a Christmas tree. He goes, I love it. That's it. That's the song. It's called uh, By Your Side, which then became... Sort of, it was the the single for the for the film, and uh, it was their one hit single. Uh, as story of the band, that was their their one hit single. And um, that movie had Jennifer Love Hewitt in it, and Will Ferrell, uh, Amy Brenneman, Ben Stiller, and Jerry Stiller, uh, Craig Bierko, just to name a few. And also, J.J. Abrams was a producer on that, but that was before he became J.J. Abrams. Abrams. Yeah. 
but he was also a producer, so Ben Stiller and J.J. Abrams. And unfortunately, that film didn't do didn't do as as, as expected. But from there, I got some other work. I I, uh, I wrote a, a cover song for uh, I think it was ABC. It's uh, with uh, Richard Dreyfus and Marsha Gayard. Um, called The Education of Max Bigford. I wrote a song for that show, and then I did something for uh, a Rodney Dangerfield film, The Godson, I think it was called. Forget. But one thing led to another, and it was just by absence, really. Again, it was like the phone call, the phone rang, and it was, hey, would you like to? And I was like, sure. One thing led to another, and all of a sudden I was auditioning for you know, uh, this and that. And I'm, I'm not even an actor. I was a trained or anything. I, I liken it too. I was thrown into the, you know, I was, I was recruited into the Olympics and I hadn't, I hadn't run, you know, one, one lap mm-hmm. at the time. And, and so it, it became this thing. I was all of a sudden I was doing voiceover for Disney films, uh, Atlantis with Michael J. Fox. I was doing, you know, I was in the suburbs. I had a, uh, I had a cameo, cameo there where I play an Icelandic cameraman. With uh, uh, with uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt and um, Dave Chappelle, the photographer. No, Dave, David Le- David Love Chappelle, the photographer. Not not, not the uh, comedian. No, no, the the famous photographer. Mm-hmm. Um, fantastic, and you know from there, and then I got a phone call to be in a uh, uh, film with Catherine B- Bigelow directing called The Way to Water with Sean Penn and Elizabeth Hurley, and we went down to Mexico. It was a it was a small part, but it was a small speaking part, and then up to Canada to do that. And then, um, you know, then I was um, – that went well, even though the editing, you know, most of it went on the cutting room floor. Oh, yeah, but, yeah. You know, you blink your eyes, you miss me. But you can't see me in the the, uh, the, the suburbans. And then um, I got a phone call saying they, they were serious – Catherine was seriously thinking about me for a film called K-19 with Harrison Ford. The Widowmaker. The Widowmaker, right. Submarine film. And that went pretty far, uh, actually. You know, they called me in a few times. They gave me the script. It was really uh, set to go. And then I heard on the news, nobody let me know that they had opted to go with an uh, an Icelandic, famous Icelandic actor, which just won sort of the European Best Actor Award, which is like the European Oscar. Mm. So I didn't, you know... um, I mean, I understood it. He, he was a no-brainer, but I was I, everything that had led up to it. I was, I thought, it was a shoo-in for me, and so that was very sort of, was very sort of heartbroken and, and disappointed about that whole thing, and it kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. I mean, I had an agent and everything at the time, but you know, I was like, uh, this wasn't really for me. It was just, too, it was just too brutal. This whole actor thing and. Uh, and again, like I said, I wasn't a trained actor or anything, that, but I mean, they saw something that I could do and stuff, but I just felt that, you know, at least in music, you can, you, you, you especially today where you have home studios and stuff, you know, you, you have your, you can call the shots pretty much yourself. As we're in film, if you're an actor, you're very much relying on the phone ringing, someone giving you the green light, mm. sort of hoping and praying for that moment all the time. Analysis. You don't, that was, as an actor, you don't really get to make your art very often on it. Uh, exactly. Like a musician. So even if nobody is ringing the musician, you can sit down with a guitar and you can write 10 songs 
And nowadays you can put them on an iPhone and probably record them and produce them. Yeah. Whereas if yeah, you're you an actor, you're, it's, it's tricky. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the whole thing about the sort of independent film phase that went on for a while that now all of a sudden, you know, like Swingers was made for uh, initially, I think it was made for two or $300,000 and then the budget was up, up, up to $500,000 and the Swingers became sort of a cult classic and, and you know, I think Bottle Rock and more other films like that sort of, uh, that allowed actors sort of to take their own destiny, write a script, uh, act in it, produce it and whatnot. Uh, like, like, almost like, uh, Ben Affleck and Ben Stiller. No, Ben Affleck and, um, yeah, Ben Affleck and who's the other guy? Um, when they did, uh, Goodwill Hunting. Well, that was Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. That was Harvey Weinstein. Matt Damon, right. That was a yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, you know, they sound. wrote that script. Yeah. They wrote that script to be in it, and yeah. voila, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's a, you know, it, it's it's for me. It's it was just a, it's just too brutal. I thought it was very brutal. I didn't, you know, even though used to standing on stage and stuff. It's always. I mean, I grew up a very shy kid, very shy, very alone and insular, and so anything public has always been a very sort of. Uh, uh, a big leap for me and going to an audition is horrible for me standing in front of people and doing a cold audition is absolutely i mean remember i did one at paramount studios and it was humiliating because i'd gone in if i think it was for deep space nine or something tv show and uh, i mean i'm just new i had just been thrown into the deep end of the pool like that i got an agent and boom i'm sent to all these big auditions and i and I knew this wasn't for me. And so I did this audition and I was like, just, I wasn't so eager. And the casting director was like, wow, that's fantastic. You, you nailed it. What are you doing right now? Go, Nothing. He goes, let's go to producers. I didn't know what that was. I thought going to producers was just, you know, handshaking, hello, this is Richard Scobie, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. We go, this is in the Paramount lot. They walk me up to the like, second floor of the building, knock on the door. And he walks in and he goes, oh, I'd like to introduce you to Richard Scobie. It's like nine guys. You know, four of them are cramped on the couch, and then two of the seats on the end there, and they're just completely stone faced. And then I'm on a sitting in a chair facing them, and not a smile, not a nod, not a wink, nothing. Mm. And I, just, I was like, I had dry mouth, and my lips got stuck to my teeth. It's horrible. <laughs> I could just see their their eyes glaze over like sharks, you know. And I was at that point, I was just done. It's like this is not for me. Yeah, you, you know, so I, I applaud you. Yeah, well, in acting school, and they learn, they teach you, they do teach you how to act, but it's very hard to teach people how to handle those scenarios, those environments. Like, how do you teach somebody to walk into a room where there's nine executive producers who could tend, who, with, with, with your future literally in their hands, potentially, and how you right. handle that emotionally and and, into, and intellectually and in terms of your confidence, and it's really, really uh, hard to handle that. Well, you know, I mean, when I'm doing this, I'm in my late 30s, mm. right? Late 30s, about to turn 40 or whatever. And so, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm an old guy to this, but they didn't see me that way. Uh, they always saw me as some, at that time, sort of fresh-faced, blah, 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 blah. But, I mean, all these actors, as you say, how do you learn? By auditioning. And, you know, actors start early, just like musicians. They start young some with the Disney channel or whatever, mm. and they just grind at it year after year. And they go to a million auditions to the point where uh, the casting directors get to know the ch children that haven't 
fall into the wayside and they get to see them grow and then they start to trust them and then like a Jake Gyllenhaal or somebody like that, you know, and then he, he had been doing it for years and then he got a break and he was in some movie as a kid and one thing leads to another. But that's how you learn. You just sort of, you become numb to it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, repetition. Um, repetition. So, so you carve out that career um, and then you move into screenwriting. You go back to college. Well, yeah, um, the screenwriting thing actually happened another by accident. It was, that literally was a phone call because I was with a bunch of uh, Icelandic mates at a famous landmark restaurant bar in L.A. called the Formosa, which is on Santa Monica Boulevard. Um, I think it was used in L.A. Confidential, even. It's a famous watering hole. and We were there, and all those guys were filmmakers. I wasn't even a filmmaker or anything like that. And there's, you know, there's a cameraman and a producer and a writer and a this and a that. And, um, one of the guys well, there was a writer, and I start telling him about an idea for a ghost story that I have that would take place in Iceland. And everybody seemed riveted. I was telling the tale what it, what it would be. And then the night ends and nothing comes of it. Then a few months later, that guy, that guy calls me up from nowhere and he says, "Remember that? Remember that ghost story you were talking about?" Blah blah blah. He goes, would you, what do you think about us writing a script about it, right? And I was like, I, I know nothing about writing a script. He goes, I'll teach you. Okay. And then, you know, he got me, you know, uh, like a pirate version of Final Draft or something to put on my computer and started writing. And then, you know, I, I w- would go to bookstores and get scripts. And I'd get good scripts and I'd get bad scripts. And I started to read them all and compare and contrast. And that's really, and then working with him, I started, I picked it up fairly quickly, you know, the three act structure and the subplots and all this stuff and the inciting incidents and all those things. And so I started writing, um, we wrote the script together and um, it did really well at the Nichols Fellowship. It got into the top 10, that script. Um, and then we kind of went our separate ways and because uh, we had sort of grown apart and then started writing scripts on my own and, um, and then and yes. Rick Shaw um, has decided to begin the journey again, Re- reanimate, come together. Come well, together. yes and no. I mean, the thing is, is that, uh, what I decided to do because I had stepped away from music while I was pursuing the, the film stuff was, mm. you know, I had all these songs, demos that I had, and I decided, well, you know, I want to release them. Um, don't know if I have any kind of a following anymore or any kind of a, you know, but I just, I have a need to release them. So I started on this journey to release an album, but then got hit by COVID and there was no sense of doing it. So I kept writing and that has now become a double album of 18 songs, which I've, I've, uh, I'm done with almost 11 songs mixing. I have seven more to go. Hopefully, uh, fingers crossed, if all goes well, that'll be released uh, in the latter part of this year. So a double album, solo album. My second solo album, but has two albums, so two and three. And then while I was doing that, I found a bunch of cassettes that I had of Rick Shaw. I started going through them, and I found a bunch of really, what I feel are really strong songs, demos that we did that never got released because of that hiatus, mm-hmm. two and a half year hiatus. And then... We couldn't release it then because it was old hat for the music industry then. 
And um, I you know, got in touch with the guys. You know, we've kept touch throughout the years and sent them the music. And they were all like, wow, they'd forgotten about them. These are great songs, and we feel that they're good songs. And so we've decided to uh, release a four-song EP, uh, Spring Summer. But start off with a one single first, and then um, sort of, yeah, we started with a four-song EP back in the day, and we're going to see if this is the end with a four-song EP again. But, you know, a different, now no, nobody's chasing any carrot, proverbial carrot now. Now it's just for the, the need of creating and sort of putting it out there. Yeah, so simply for the enjoyment. So back in the 80s, you were chasing something. You were chasing the dream. Chasing the dream. Yeah, but now you're putting it out for you, which is, which is fantastic. And something that I look forward to and... Um, all your friends you. and, and fans look forward to as well. Last question. What is, well, you've kind of answered it already. What does the future hold? Well, um, <clears throat> just that, you know, do um, keep on being creative and uh, see, you know, growing uh, sort of, uh, you know, challenging myself creatively. I would, I probably would like to maybe write another screenplay because I, you know, once you, force yourself to sit down and start doing it. It's quite enjoyable because you, you're immersed in this world that you're creating. But, I mean, I, I haven't given up on um, sort of getting my films made. It's just, you know, again, it, it became an issue with... Uh, when you when you find out what it takes to get a film financed and made, it's amazing that any films get made. Yeah, it is. Um, 90% of scripts that are green, that are optioned don't get made. That's the thing. And when you see the hard work and the hours and the toil that goes into developing an idea, writing the first draft, then rewriting the first draft, and then all of a sudden then going to find producers and financing stuff. And for, and then you think, you, know, you spend years doing that. And then when you think about it, what's the end product? Well, if you're lucky that it's in a few cinemas for a week. Or no. it just might be a hit. And that really is is the addiction and, and that's what people are chasing you know it, it's that the opportunity because if it does hit your life has changed irrevocably forever well that's the thing it's those phone calls that for just one would actually pay off but mm. for me now i mean it was a combination of sort of yeah you want to hear your songs played or your script made or, but for me it's more about uh, you have a story to tell and you think it's an interesting story. And you think it's a story, like say my, my script, The Bonio Boys, you think it will bring something to people's lives like other films have brought to my life, you know, joy, laughter, maybe even a few tears, you know, compassion for the character or whatever. That's more sort of my motivator is to bring something, put something out there that actually touches people, you know. I don't believe in Trump for the masses. I, that's, not where I, that's not where I'm at. That's not, I'm not interested in anything like that. Something, you know, films that really I enjoyed, like uh, independent films like uh, Waking That Divine or uh, Still Crazy, which is a rock and roll uh, film. And um, uh, even, you know, Full Monty, I think, was made for, if I remember correctly, it was made for like a half a million dollars, $500,000. It made $300 million, you know, which is great. But it's a, it's a fun story. Mm. You know, it's a great little story. And that's the thing is to tell... Uh, if you can, a unique, uh, touching story that people can relate to. You know, that's, that's my. Uh, that's that. That's the. That's what the future holds, and um, 
Best of luck in that journey, Richard. It's been thank fascinating, you. endlessly fascinating talking to you. So Likewise. thank you for that and good luck. Thank you, mate. Take care.